today I welcome Ed Benbo, Headmaster at Hazelgrove Preparatory School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the egg timer effect in education, the foundations of creativity, curiosity and confidence for young children, and what prep schools are doing in preparing for the future of work. I know that you've spoken to your staff about the egg timer effect in education. What is the egg timer effect and how does it affect children? I think I can tell you what it is. How it's affecting children is, is harder to measure. But essentially, my feeling is that you enter your world as a two-year-old, frankly, and you go into, in our case, a pre-prep or more broadly, any kind of nursery, sort of primary school environment. And it is a place of wonder and experiment and space and colour. Yes, there is a curriculum, but it is a very free curriculum from which you can really sort of go different directions as a teacher and therefore as a child. And then gradually you get to about the age of nine and suddenly your freedom and your space start to sort of ease. And, and the reason for that, certainly in private schools and prep schools, but I would say to a certain extent in state schools as well, with 11 plus, is that you are very quickly sort of squashed into a very, very exam heavy, in our case, often verbal reasoning, non-verbal reasoning, you know, very bland means of assessing your intelligence. That ability to explore and, and express yourself and discover is suffocated. And really, the feeling is, in speaking certainly to senior schools as well, is that that unfortunately then continues through to GCSEs. And you really only come back out into that more free or inspiring environment, really come A-levels. The journey ends up being like an egg timer in that from about the age of two till six, you're in a good, open, free space. You're then squashed from about sort of eight, nine through to about 16, and then you come out again. I can't really tell you whether that's always been the case and, and only now are we really talking about it, but I think there is certainly a growing sense that the GCSE model is restrictive. It's quite rote learnt. I think teachers would admit they are vulnerable to teaching to pass the exam rather than to really learn and really explore themes and, and bring things to life. And I think to a degree, we are victims in certainly the prep school world where it is the senior school's fault, but I can see why they're doing it. They're starting to push the pretest process to a younger age. Now it's commonly age 10 or 11. And so with that just comes a more prescripted preparation process in order to get that place at that senior school. And that's very difficult for prep schools because, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, this has been around for a while. So Ken Robinson was a great kind of leader and voice in the space around teaching creativity, getting kids to have no bounds, big thinking, because by the time you get into this assessment, hourglass narrowing, that you start to get, you lose your ability to be creative because we're all on the next, it's like a game, I always feel. It's like I'm, I have to unlock the next level. I've got to level up. I've got to do all these things. I'm going to level up. And they might throw some different obstacles, but it's the same thing. I just know that actually that where I'm going to get to, I'm quite restricted as well by where I get to in that next level. What can you do with the curriculum? What could you do with some of the skills that maybe the younger kids need to get? I hope we are doing a pretty good job at stretching out that egg timer. And, and obviously the reason it first came up when you and I talked about it was because that had been the message to all my staff in September at, at INSET. We are blessed with space. 
indoor and outdoor space, that sort of initial sense of space and wonder that you have in pre-prep, we can replicate further up school, both in terms of physical space, but also in the timetable and the curriculum. What we're starting to do, and, and we're not alone in this, I think a lot of prep schools are now looking at common entrance as what has historically for decades been the sort of blueprint assessment process to get into senior schools. A lot of senior schools, in fact, the vast majority of senior schools are saying, we're not interested. We don't even want to market anymore. I mean, you can send the papers if you want, but frankly, we're really not that interested. What we want is inquisitive, creative, curious, literate, young boys and girls who we can then take on. So in a way, they've given us an own goal. And so what it needs now is prep schools to be able to boldly heed to that advice and be brave enough to go, okay, actually, I'm going to tear up common entrance and therefore essentially write our own curriculum or something similar. What we're doing is twofold. One is we're ensuring that our timetable, for want of a better word, is as wide and varied as possible. So we will ensure that you will have every single week, there will be a class music lesson, a class swimming lesson, a class P lesson, class DT, art, food tech, drama, outdoor ed, ICT. We now have a weekly well-being lesson for our year sevens and eights, which we've only introduced in September, a weekly PSHE lesson for the whole school. Where, wherever possible, of course, you need a degree of academic rigor, but we are trying to open our children's minds up to everything. That's something that I think every good prep school has done to a degree. And, and I look back to my prep school days and there was an element of that already in place, aided again by a sense of space and outdoors and boarding and that sort of resilience. The other thing though, which is more pertinent now is as that common entrance model starts to break up, you are really able to write your own script. That's harder. You're trying to move very established teachers into a different mindset. You know, if you've been teaching, in my case, maths for 10, 15, 20 years, you know what you're doing, you know the scheme of work, you've got the past papers, you know, life's pretty straightforward and formulaic. And you're saying, no, no, but now I want you to tear that up and I want you to actually write a new scheme of work. It's not easy. We've certainly done that the last sort of 18 months. We've taken history, geography, and RE away from common entrance. We'd no longer sit those papers. And instead, we have written our own humanities curriculum. And it is much more project-based. It's much more collaborative, cross-subject. There's a lot more use technology of research, of using their iPads, of doing presentations. There's a nice strap line within there with regard to our history, where we're trying a philosophy where we're learning from history rather than about history. So rather than just doing the Battle of Hastings, because that's what we've always done, it's just trying to shift that approach to what have we learned from it? How has the world evolved as a result of it? You know, we always joke as children, you used to learn dates, you know, and I can still tell you that, you know, Magna Carta is 1215 and Agincourt is 1405, but I wouldn't say it's really helped me in my life. That's still in its infancy, that sort of new approach. I love it. And that's what schools need to be doing. We need to be challenging the curriculum. You know what needs to be done. Getting that change in place requires you transforming or changing the way you do things. And that requires getting the buy-in from teachers. So yeah. there's obviously, A, getting buy-in that, you know, this is change is uncomfortable, but we need your help, but we're going to get you involved. Mm. And then parents, because there's an expectation of going, why should we be the guinea pigs? Because look, I'm paying mm. for a good prep education here. How's that process been? It's quite challenging because parents tend to view their children's education very much as a sort of comparison with their own. 
so often you'll be describing a child and they'll immediately start to sort of compare it to them. So if you're saying, you know, I'm just finding that your son is, he is struggling a little bit with solving equations, they'll immediately go, oh, of course, yeah, I mean, I found equations a nightmare, so it's not surprising. And you think, okay, well, with all due respect, it's not really about you and your ability to solve equations. It's more about your child and where your child is going. The other we've seen very recently was I, rightly or wrongly, I think it's early days to say the way, but I've scaled back Latin. So I took a view in the summer that in a world where trends of, you start to talk about A-level choices in, amongst our senior schools, there's been a huge drop-off in Latin and modern languages and a huge growth in areas like business, computing, psychology, sociology. Surely, therefore, as prep schools, that we're trying to align ourselves to our senior schools and ultimately to society, that should be sending quite an important message to us. So I actually, in June, announced that we were scaling back our Latin provision. You know, it had a very mixed reception from parents. There were those very supportive, saying, oh, I can't believe it's taken this long. But there were those who were very, very opposed to it. It's interesting, the most vocal were those who had done Latin themselves. That's with good reason. But again, I think it was with a sense of nostalgia more than it was necessarily a sense of where we should be going in the world. There are definitely challenges. We are routined as a species, particularly, I think, as teachers. We're not very good with change. But I think we're at a stage now where technological change and society change is more exponential than it's ever been. If ever there's a time where we've got to be more open to change, it's now. And that therefore plays a part in your curriculum as well. It is challenging. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a conversation we have to have more and more and more. We do. We have to face into change, particularly if we are going to steward these young boys and girls off, you know, for you into senior school to thrive. And likewise, the senior schools themselves need to change and adapt to ensure that the kids leave them in good health happy and confident to thrive in the next stage, wherever it is, whether it's education, apprenticeships, whether it's straight out and changing the world. I think starting at prep school is the most critical foundation. It's a great place to be, to be in charge of that. But it's also difficult. You know, like we talk about technology, we talk about the change happening, you know, how much access all of our children get. You know, I'm very aware of it. I feel that between my eldest, who's 20, and my youngest, who's 12, they have their micro generations of how they use technology. Before it used to be generational, these are micro-generations. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I know you've talked about well-being at school. We talk about the mental health issues that maybe are hitting our teenagers. How do you bridge that and what are you doing around well-being? And you could argue this is old-fashioned, but we are still a phone-free school. And actually, it's become almost the opening line now to open days. And it's incredibly well-received by parents. I think it's a real draw. And it's kind of ironic in, in such a technological world. But they really appreciate that there is a degree of control on their phone use. Clearly, there is access to tablets and technology through our curriculum. But from essentially everything outside the classroom, there is a, a no phone approach completely. I think that's so, so valuable and so powerful. And there was a great speaker, James Schoen, who you may have come across. He always talks about the UFO effect, which is to look up, look forwards, look out. We really subscribe to that, that actually 
in spite of an increasingly technological world, that we are ultimately still social, interactive human beings that need to have those skills in place. And therefore, the ability to look up, look forward, look out will, I hope, remain going forward. Let's be honest, in a, an interview process, whether it's for a senior school, whether it's for a job, you will need those skills. That, I think, plays two parts, because on the one hand, it helps you become a better, I say better person, a more socially aware and emotionally aware human being. But also, it does improve your mental health. You have a greater sense of perspective, and you are not overly reliant on, on a robot. I mean, I was reading yesterday a terrifying article about Gen Alpha and how someone had seen their two-year-old child see a butterfly at the window. They saw the two-year-old child go to the window and do this because they were trying to expand the butterfly. Trying to pinch with their two fingers as the gesture movement to zoom something. That's just terrifying. We are big on that. And again, you know, you can argue it goes back to the structure of your timetable. Is there that activity, that exercise, that socializing, that challenge, that competition? And I would argue absolutely. And all of that is key to mental health. And, and you know, often our assemblies will focus on, or our PSHE lessons will focus on the key ingredients of happiness and well-being. And they are, they are being social, being active, taking on a new challenge, being with your family. But they're also outdoors, right? You know, you have wonderful, wonderful grounds. And, you know, I think that is the beauty. I'm, I'm with you at prep school. I think I'm quite a spoken when I think technology should not be removed from children's access because they need to learn how to deal with it. But at the same time, phones are distracting because kids don't know how to operate them in terms of responsibly. So having a phone-free primary school is brilliant. And then having the ability for them to go outside to play, you've got great outdoor learning places. I know that forest schools, you've got everything. So they get to enjoy the outdoors, be children for as long as they can be children. When they hit 12 or 13 and they go off into senior yeah. schools, wow, does it change? Absolutely. It's a cheesy phrase, but we, we talk about preserving childhood for as long as possible. That's certainly a real appeal for staying within a prep school for year seven and eight. You are protected. Some would argue that it means you're almost making year nine harder because suddenly you do have a phone and then you do make mistakes. We would defend that by saying that we are at least opening their eyes. We are still educating them about the pitfalls of technology and the digital footprints. And the minute you take that photo or you write that comment, you know, it's there forever. They're still going to make mistakes. We still all make mistakes. Politicians are making mistakes. They're our age. I mean, or older. We're all meant to be experienced, but we're not. And that's the problem with technology that we still haven't learned to live with it because we're not native to it. They are native to it and probably will learn better habits than we ever had because we're the worst role models. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes. And do you think it's harder in a senior school? I mean, you talked about, you know, that children between the ages of 8 and 16 have these educational shackles. Is it harder, do you feel, at a senior school to manage that tech? I think it is. But to give senior schools their due, I think they are also adapting. Certainly, there are stricter rules in terms of, I was going to say stricter rules in terms of access to phones, but any clever, canny teenager will have a backup phone when they hand their first phone into their teacher. But they're doing everything they can. They are limiting wherever possible the use of phones, educating as much as possible the pitfalls of using phones. But they're also, from a curriculum perspective, they are being more creative now around their offering. You know, BTECs have been a massive success in some of the senior schools around here. It is allowing a child a greater choice and a more meaningful 
sense of direction rather than just doing a certain level because I feel I have to do it. I'm actually doing it because I really, really want to do it. And I've therefore got a bit more self-esteem attached. But of course, with that, teenagers are the smartest of anyone when it comes to technology and they will find loopholes. They'll find their 5G, however hard schools try. And I think it's every senior school's biggest, biggest challenge to try and combat that. And every parent's. Yeah. We have regular talks with our parents and try and educate them, but they're at a loss as anyone as to how to control it. I know that one of the aims of the schools is to prepare young people for the future. And, you know, we talk about the future as if it doesn't exist. And it's, you know, with AI came along in 2023 in a big way, in a tangible way. And obviously, as we always look to the future, people always saying that the robots are going to take our jobs. But how can schools like yourselves align themselves with students' future destinations? And what yeah. preparation are you doing? I attended a talk by a, a, one of the large accountancy firms back in January, and it was their recruitment division. It was a real eye-opener. I mean, having gone through the milk round process 22 years ago from university where firms would come to university, show you a good time, and you'd go and sign up. Those days are gone now. This company were describing how the days of getting a first or two one from Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, LSE, you know, one or two others, and you basically had a job in the bag. They said that's gone. Their form of assessment and appraisal is far more sort of intangible. And they talked about, again, we've said the words already, but things like your creativity, being a team player, problem solving, curiosity. Now, how you measure that as a corporate, I don't know. And I'm sure they've got all sorts of algorithms they use. But it was in a way quite refreshing that it's suddenly opening up the job market to everyone rather than the elite or the inverted commas intelligent, because that's where they see a more technological AI driven world going. Therefore, what's happening is senior schools are starting to respond to that and going, oh, okay, right. Well, if that's the kind of outcome you're wanting as an 18 or a 21 year old, then we need to adapt. And similarly, that's what we're doing too. So the last so six months or so, I've been talking about the three C's, you know, curiosity, creativity, and confidence. Those might come as a surprise to some because they would imagine you should be going, you know, it should be all about your literacy and your numeracy and your sort of innate intelligence. But I think it's a bit more subtle than that. So I hope that the nature of a good all-round prep school lends itself very well to those three C's and gives 13-year-olds, boys and girls, a really good platform from which to continue that trajectory. And, and ultimately, you know, whether it's an apprenticeship aged 18 or a degree and a job at 21, you're well set either way. It's exactly that. And uh, I remember Ian Y doing it a decade ago, actually, when I first started talking about the future school, they were the first to go, we don't care about university. And all that said was, yeah, we don't care about what results your kids are getting. But then it almost threw a spanner in the works to senior schools going, yeah, but that's what we do. We churn out kids because mm -hmm. look, we said that the holy grail is you need to get to university. It's going to unlock it. And it's becoming harder and harder for private school children because, you know, the A, because of diversity and inclusion, equity, there's a real set aside agenda that it's going to be harder because it's not a given that if you go to great schools that you've paid for, that you're going to get access even to the most prestigious universities in the UK or the world. Well, I think that can now start to work back in their advantage because with the perceived, if you like, negative discrimination or whatever you call it, of the likes of Oxford and Cambridge favouring state schools over private schools, 
Now there's the opportunity, I think, for private schools to say, okay, with what we have in terms of our offering and our curriculum and our space and our great outdoors, they can take themselves now more to the corporate world as it's ever-changing in the way they assess young men and women. Yeah, it's not easy. But it's just very fascinating watching it play out. You know, my kids are 18, 20, 18, 16 and 12. And so even seeing the difference in inclusion policies from my 20-year-old, who's now in the third year, my son who's just started first year, to where my daughter, she's doing GCSEs, she's dyslexic and creative. And guess what? She doesn't like half the subject. They're difficult. She finds them hard. So we're now at that next juncture. You talk about assessment of going, what do we do? And I find it the hardest of all my children so far. Where can she be curious, be creative, and Mm. absolutely not lose her confidence? Because Mm. it's what you need. So I'm signed up to the three Cs. I think that's awesome. Have you found any kind of resistance to this shift? No, not really. I mean, as I said, it's early days in terms of adopting that philosophy. I do think our parents need to be educated on it more. Not That's not a criticism. It's that I'm guilty of it as a parent, that one does have a rather backward-looking view of education. They need to gain a better understanding, particularly of how the assessment process of senior schools is working. And I think that changing corporate recruitment is fascinating. And dare I say it, how perhaps a degree is not necessarily as valuable as it used to be. Yes, it has a value in its medicine, architecture, you know, very clear cut qualifications. But in other fields, does a 2-1 in English actually matter for going into the working world? I did Spanish and Russian and ended up being a stockbroker sitting in London. Well, that was a waste of time doing that degree, you could argue. I don't think that there'll be resistance. I just think there needs to be a little bit of education about how the world has changed. And I do think they need a clearer understanding of that alignment process. A decision like Latin, controversial as it is, there is forward-looking strategic aligning rationale behind it. It's not just some maverick headmaster wanting to introduce a new subject. We're going to see the likes, though. I know there was a couple of senior schools have removed themselves from offering GCSEs. It needs some pioneers, right, to test it. Because everyone's been talking about it for a long time. And so you need a few mavericks. That's what we teach our kids, right, to take risk. And, you know, a prep school, what a great place to learn to take risk in such a safe environment. I want to ask you one final question, and that's for you to look into your crystal ball. And what would the future of education look like, do you think, in 2050? Would it have changed much? But what about senior school? It's amazing, isn't it? That's only 27 years away. And yet I left school 27 years ago. And I fear and feel that that trajectory of change and growth in the last 27 versus the next 27 is so, so leaps and bounds steeper. Making a prediction like that's very hard. Having said that, this is me being very backward looking now. The values and qualities of a prep school education, all the things we discussed, the variety, the space, the sort of sense of wonder and creativity, that has had deep value for hundreds of years. So the next 27, I would have confidence there is still going to be a place absolutely in it for all those three C reasons. Within that though, we can't ignore, clearly we can't ignore AI. And there is already a sense that over, probably quite soon over the coming years, there will be a gradual, probably quite steep shift from a a human being teacher in the room, but a AI teaching assistant in the room actually can serve two purposes. They can support the people just as much as they can support the teacher. 
you can't ignore. That's extremely powerful. And that's, dare I say, extremely cost-effective. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.